Bel Air, the Lent season has begun, and as we do every year, we have an opportunity to walk on this journey together. I know not all of you are aware of this, but in this Lent season, as we head towards Easter, we have an opportunity to grow together. Two things I want to let you know about. We have this Lenten devotional written by our church staff and church family. Many of you have been part of crafting this together, as you have in previous years. If you haven't picked this up, we're giving these away outside our sanctuary. It's been great for my wife and I and our son to go through this together. What a great gift it is, little bite-sized devotionals as we make our way towards Easter. In addition to that, uh, we have an opportunity. If you are brand new to church, if you are not connected, if you uh, need some sense of others in your life and you want to test drive a life group where we can not only in a small group setting but do life with one another. We've got an opportunity right after the service for you to go through some content that our very own associate director of small groups, Mandy Fowler, has put together. And we're going through this in many of our small groups throughout the church. But if you'd like to try a new group today, if you'd like to experience that, if you're not yet connected, great opportunity for you right after the service to go underneath our uh, umbrella and tent outside to get connected with a leader and experience some of this great content. Now, I shared at the beginning of the service, uh, some of you were here when I shared it, but this is our 60-year anniversary as a church. In addition to that, it's our opportunity to acknowledge many of the huge milestones along the way. We've got one of those milestones today in the fact that Reverend Care Crawford, today, today, it's her 30-year anniversary, serving this church on staff as a pastor. We're so thrilled. I know many of you are going to be sticking around after the service for a celebration uh, for her and give thanks for her and her ministry right after the service in her discipleship center. But I want to invite in a moment up uh, our guest speaker today. Many of you, you know him. He's a beloved part of our Bel Air family. Bill Crawford is not only Care's brother, but he is also the senior pastor and head of staff at Water's Edge Church down in Manhattan Beach. Uh, we're we planted that church uh, in this last season, and they're thriving, so many healthy things going on. If you don't know Bill, uh, he's got a great love of the Lord, uh, did uh, his training not only at Westmont and Princeton, but also at the University of Edinburgh and Scotland. And in addition to all that, he's a phenomenal teacher of God's Word. So I'm excited to sit in the front row to hear this message for the second time. God bless you as you come on up. Let's give a warm welcome to Bill. Thank you. Aro and Mindy, <laughs> one of my favorite leadership journal cartoons is where the pastor leans over the crib and says, how's my little sermon illustration today? <laughs> so, that's great. I was so glad I got to be here this Sunday for that. And I want to bring you greetings from Water's Edge. Uh, we, a common experience I think you will all have when you get to heaven is that people who you've never met will come up to you and say thank you. And you'll say, well, what for? And they'll say, well, you were a part of Bel Air Church, weren't you? And you say, yes. So they say, well, you know, we, your church made possible Water's Edge down in South Bay, and we came to know Christ through the ministry of that church. And so I just want to say thank you. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Philippians, he says, uh, I want to thank you for your gift. He said, uh, your gift is fruit to your account. And I think what he was meaning is, for all the people I reach, it doesn't go on my account, it goes on your account. And, and the people that we reach through Water's Edge will be on your account. And uh, I think that uh, it would be an undervalued phrase to say thank you. But on behalf of our congregation and in the name of Christ, mucho gracias. <laughs> Dale Bruner's 
doctoral thesis on the Holy Spirit in Bill Heibel's book entitled Too Busy Not to Pray and Phil Yancey's book, Prayer Does It Make a Difference, were helpful in preparing my message today. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for you. And thank you for your amazing church, part of which is gathered in this room right now. And in the next few moments, we'd like to hear from you and learn how your church began and then how we can pray a little bit more intelligently. Holy Spirit, you be the teacher now and we'll submit ourselves to your word for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I just want to say a quick word about my sister, Care. First of all, anything that she's told you about me has been exaggerated and is not true. <laughs> or is not true. Now, I don't know if you remember when people who were disciplined in prayer used to be called prayer warriors. You knew that when they prayed, God was probably listening. And now today we call men and women who are those kind of people, we call them intercessors. A prayer intercessor is somebody who uh, brings the needs of people to God and holds those needs in their own heart. I think we should all have one and we could all be one. I, I like the phrase though, prayer warrior. Warriors to me just has a vivid picture in my mind. When I first got into ministry, I said, this is fun. And after a couple of years, I go, this is work. And then I realized this is war because we don't fight against flesh and blood as the Bible says, but, about powers, but against powers and principalities of the evil age or the evil world. Graham Cook in his book entitled Qualities of a Spiritual Warrior writes this, the plan of the enemy is to create misery, take away hope and develop a climate of despair and helplessness. We must of necessity position ourselves daily in Christ in order to reveal the nature of the kingdom. Good soldiers fight for the space around them to create a clearing where Christ can be seen. And I think that's what Kara has done over the last 30 years. She clears a space around her so that Christ can be seen. And I'd like to tell you how she does it. Kara waits on God and care prays for others. In fact, here's where she does it. This is her prayer chair in her house. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus told the disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so according to Acts 14, or 1 14, all the disciples together with certain women, including Mary and the mother of Jesus, were constantly devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 2, 1 and 2, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, what were they doing? We just saw in Acts chapter 1, they were waiting and they were devoting themselves to prayer. Verse 2, suddenly a sound like the, like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So picture this, you're in a room with fellow believers and there's this sound of wind that's just growing in its velocity and it fills the room. And I don't know how many of you have ever been in a hurricane or in a gale force uh, wind where the high velocity is just, you know, blowing way in. I imagine that it would be terrifying if you experienced it. But 
But I'll tell you what makes it terrifying is it's out of our control. Something supernatural is going on and we can't manage it. And so there is this group of Christians in this upper room waiting for the coming of the promised Holy Spirit. And there's this sound of wind that's just escalating and everybody's aware of it. And I think the first message that God was trying to teach the church when the Holy Spirit arrived is that there is now a power that is beyond human control and human authority. And it's going to operate in this entity called the church. So it's not going to be a civil club, it's not going to be a social club, it's not going to be a country club. This is not going to be a deal where some men and women get together and in human strength try to seek to do goodwill for the world. The first signal that God sends to his church is that there is a mighty power and it's going to sweep into the life and the activity of the church and you're going to become a part of something that is supernatural. In fact, I think this is one of the things I love about Kara. She realizes that the church, this church, is caught up in something that is divine and not human. Well, the very next thing that happens is even more interesting to me. Verse 3, then they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and then came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. There's this fire, the text says, that separates and then it kind of dances on top of the people's heads. Well, if it divides, what was it before it separated? Probably it was a large ball of fire. I mean, you've already had the sound of wind rushing in, the sound of wind, and it's terrifying. And now you've got a ball of fire that comes in the room, and and about that time you don't know what's going to happen, and then it separates. And the text says very specifically that these little separated pieces of fire come to rest on each of them. And friends, I think this is so significant because this was symbolizing that the Holy Spirit was coming upon the church and that every true believer in the church, every sincere believer, everyone who has, has invited Christ into their life, everyone gets the flame. The Holy Spirit didn't come as a ball of fire and just rest on top of Peter's head and everybody else is, is flameless. It didn't rest on James and, and, and John and Peter's head and then all the rest were laity. And in this picture, I think, if it were to happen right now, if this ball of fire representing the power of the Holy Spirit arrived in this room and followed the pattern that it did on the day of Pentecost, I think it would split up and be distributed in the same size over every head in this place. And there would be no distinction of the flame on my head over your head. There would be no distinction that a man gets a bigger flame than a woman or that a rich person gets a bigger flame than a poor person or that a black person gets a bigger flame than a white person or vice versa. You are all possessors of the full measure of the work of the Holy Spirit. And this whole thing is supernatural and it's going on in each of you in a supernatural way. You have full flame privileges, which means full adoption as God's child, full guidance, full wisdom, full courage, full strength, full power for fighting temptation, all of that. And that also means that you have some responsibilities too. 
And what I want you to grasp is that the first thing to realize is that this congregation is under the supernatural control of Almighty God and not human beings. And second, that every person that you lock eyes with has the same measure of the Holy Spirit going on in their life. Whether they yield to it as much as someone else, well, that's another thing and another sermon. But the full measure of the Spirit in each one of us is given to equip and empower us, empower us. And that's what I want you to see in high definition if you see nothing else this morning. That whether you're a week old in Christ or 50 years old in Christ, whether you're smart or not so smart, whether you're powerful or not so powerful, you have the Holy Spirit in full measure who equips you to receive the privileges of ministry and also to bear the responsibilities of ministry. You're going to be studying this in your Latin groups as you study Acts and, and the book of Ephesians. I hope you're in one in your small group. And, and one of the things that spirit-occupied people do is they pray for others. Acts 2.42, after the spirits come, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And in the time that remains, I want to show you the most intelligent prayer I think that probably ever been prayed for a group of people. And I think it's a model of the kind of prayers that care has been praying for you and that we can be praying for others. So let's look at Ephesians 3.14. Paul says, for this reason I bow on my knees before the Father. And by the way, up until this point he's been telling them about all the blessings that they have in Christ and about the marvelous plan that God has for their lives. And, then, and so now he's going to break into this prayer on their behalf. And he says in verse 16, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. How often have you prayed for somebody to be strengthened in their inner being? I mean, don't we most of the time get hung up on praying about people's external circumstances? It would have been so easy for Paul to pray to the, for the Ephesians, you know, hey, I, the main thing I'm praying for you is that your business will, will thrive and the economy will get better. Or I hope the rains come on time so that you'll have bumper crops this year. Or I hope that the conservatives win the next election. Paul resisted the temptation to pray for fair weather circumstances for the Christ followers who are in Ephesus. Rather, he prays for circumstances that whatever they are that come their way, and it's likely to be a mixed bag. There's going to be some good and there's going to be some bad. He's saying, the prayer that I'm praying for you is this, that you'll be strengthened in your inner being so that you can stand strong enough no matter what comes your way. And I think what happens most of the time is we start talking about difficult external circumstances and we never really analyze what our faith walk is like. Can we say that our faith is deeper? That our dependence of God for the future is just a little bit stronger? Now, I'd never suggest that you pray for bad things to happen, but I think when Paul is praying this intelligent prayer for the whole church, he goes, I pray that you will be strengthened in your inner being by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can stand up to anything that the world throws at you. Several years ago, when I was living back in Michigan, I was playing golf one day, and uh, a, a guy was a single. He said, hey, could I, could I join you? I said, sure. And as we're walking along, it turns out he's a retired nuclear submarine captain. And so he starts telling me some amazing stories. Now, 
You may have read about this if you're my age, but uh, if you're not, you wouldn't know this, but one of the first nuclear submarines was called the Thresher. And the Thresher one time dove to a depth that no submarine had ever gone. And the submarine imploded and all the men on board were killed. And this captain was describing to me how there is an air pressure on the inside of the submarine that pushes the walls of the submarine out. And the water pressure on the outside is pushing in. And it got to a point where the outside pressure was greater than the internal pressure to withstand it, and it collapsed. And it seems to me for many people in life, sometimes the outward circumstances are so great and the pressure is so great that they don't have the capability in the inside to withstand it and they collapse. And so that's why Paul says, I pray that you'll be strengthened in your inner being so that no matter what happens, you'll be able to withstand what the world throws at you. And then he moves on in verse 17. He says, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I think Paul is praying that the people of Ephesus would be convinced of Christ's indwelling presence. And I want to tell you something, friends. This is unique to Christianity, that the actual presence of God would accompany people throughout the course of their day. Remember one of the last things that Jesus said before he ascended into heaven? And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He was saying, hey, physically, I'm going to be transported up to the Father, but the Holy Spirit is coming, and the Holy Spirit is going to give you an awareness of my presence. And that awareness may make you or break you in difficult times. And that's what Paul, I think, is saying in this prayer. Whatever you're going through, if you can go through it with the awareness of Christ's indwelling presence, you're likely to make it. Now, over the course of my 40 years of ministry, I've had to officiate some very difficult funerals. I've done young people killed in accidents. I've done suicide, infant deaths, heart attacks, devastating cancer, a, a, a lot of terrible things. And oftentimes, when I go to sit with family members who, humanly speaking, are inconsolable, I try to think of what I could say to them. And I have to be honest with you, words don't come to me that easily in moments like that. More than once, I've simply opened my Bible to Psalm 23, verse 4, and what I actually do is I ask a family member or one of the, 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 the siblings or somebody to read it out loud. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And then these words come out of the lips of either grieving parents or siblings, for you are with me. And when somebody is going through a difficult time and they get an awareness of the presence of God, sometimes it's just that awareness that's the difference maker between total despair and being able to get a little bit on the, the side of hope. Some time ago, I had been in a discouraging time and I was reading Psalm 23 for me. And I saw something very interesting. Up until this point in the psalm, he is talking in the third person pronouns. He talks about God. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness. But then when David is in the valley, he doesn't want to talk about God. He wants to talk to God. And he moves to second person pronouns. You 
are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. I underline you are with me in my Bible. It's even circled it because I think God understood how frustrated I was and he understands how daunting it feels to look at tomorrow. But he's here with me right here, right now. And for me, that turned an emotional and also a spiritual tide in my life. It was the difference between being alone and being aware of Christ's indwelling presence. Now, I know that some of you who are here today are in terribly desperate circumstances. Some of you are in the kind of grief that feels like you can't recuperate. I, I've been in those periods. And I guess I want to say to you today the kind of thing that Paul was praying into the people that he was praying for. I'd like to say on Christ's behalf, he is near. His presence is close by. And no matter what you're going through, his indwelling presence can make the difference for you. And then Paul moves on and there's this beautiful section in 17, he, verse 17. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now I'm going to abbreviate this a little bit, not exegete this whole portion, but, but there's something here that's very surprising about how Paul prays. He says, I want you to be rooted. One translation says, I want you to be established in the love of God which surpasses knowledge. And when some of you read this, those of you who know your Bible, this would be either fascinating or troubling. And here's why. Because in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was the knowledge guy. He was the intellectual heavyweight champion of the first century. He taught theology meticulously. He argued for Christ's resurrection like a high-priced lawyer. He sparred with Greek philosophers just for recreation. He wrote a third of the New Testament. He, he was like the Rhodes Scholar of Christianity. He was the intellectual Christian rock star of the day. And he says, as important as knowledge is, and it's essential that we have to be established in the knowledge of God, but he says, there is a love that leapfrogs over whatever knowledge you have, and it gets right at your heart. And it changes something in you the moment that you feel the indescribable touch of the affection of a sovereign God. Paul would say, I'm not a head guy right now. I'm a heart guy who wants you to have a direct hit of affection from God. It's that soul filling, that heart softening awareness that the God of creation is focused and passionate and he has an irrational and an unconditional and an eternal love for you. And I'll tell you, when you experience it, it changes you. It bolsters you. It melts you. But it won't leave you the same. And in this text, Paul just kind of gets swept away when he thinks about this powerful touch of the love of God. Always reminded me of, of Romans 8, which is my favorite chapter of the Bible. He says, starting at verse 38, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's salvation moment was not a head moment. 
It wasn't like he turned the page in a book of theology and he says, now I give an assent to this doctrine. His salvation moment was a tidal wave of the personal love that came from God and it just washed over his heart. Creeds are important. Doctrines are important. But friends, there's a time when you need to be touched deeply by the love of God. Moving on, Paul says, another thing that I really, really want to have happen, I would like you to be filled to capacity with God himself. Verse 19, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. And later in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit. Well, who's the Spirit? God. Who's Jesus? God. How do you think Jesus comes to live in your life? By way of his Spirit. I had this image when I was younger that God was this giant pitcher and I was a cup and saucer and it was like God was going to pour more of his spirit into me, you know. Uh, fill me, Lord, fill me. We sing, fill my cup, let it overflow, you know. Well, the Holy Spirit is a person. He, he's not a, not a liquid or a force or an energy. And when he comes to live in you, he, he resides in you. You have all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get the minute you become a believer. Now, he might get a hold of more of you, but he's resident. I remember one time Dwight L. Moody was asked, he was the great evangelist of the 18th century. So the lady said, sir, are you filled with the Spirit? And he said, yes, madam, but I leak. Uh, <laughs> but the word filled in Greek is a derivative of a military word, which means to be subjected to or under the authoritative control of. If the commander says attention, you come to attention. You're filled with his will. You're subjected to or under his authority. If he says at ease, you go at ease. Football coach says, son, I want you to go in there and run play number 30 around left end. Go. And the kid says, no. He said, I said play number 30 around left end. Go. And he says, no. That kid just quenched the coach. And you know what he's doing? He's sitting on the bench. And he'll continue to sit on the bench until he goes to the coach. And he says, coach, thy will be done play number 30 around left end, and then he's restored to the game. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is a moment-by-moment -moment conscious decision on your part that you will get under and stay under the authoritative control of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that you could be filled with the Spirit at 9.15 and at 9.45. You might not be in 11.15. You might be in 11.45. You might not be because it's a moment-by-moment -moment conscious decision to get under and stay under his authority that's already resident in your life. Paul wanted to pray this into his friends that they would be filled to capacity with God with their thoughts and the feelings and, and the words and the truths and the wisdom of God. And I think that's something that we could pray for each other. Now verse 20 is one of the classic texts in all the Bible. Now to him who is able to do more abundantly, the NIV says immeasurably more, the King James Version says exceedingly abundantly, more than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us. And I guess the way I would summarize this is, I wish Paul says you believers would be convinced of God's miracle working power. You know, there are a lot of people you might be one of them who, when you became a Christian, you actually believed that the sovereign God could pull off anything he wanted to pull off. And what happens over time is a lot of people start developing a category of stuff that they feel isn't worth praying about anymore. It's called the impossible category. And they go, you know, I prayed for that person for three months and he's just a hard egg, so I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to move him over to the impossible category. 
I prayed for this situation for four years and God didn't do anything. So now I'm going to put that in the impossible category and I'm not going to bother God or even get myself worked up about it anymore. And I watch people do this all the time and I'm ashamed to say I watch it happen in my own life. Prayers I used to pray with faith somehow become prayers that I no longer pray because somehow I think God can't do it. Paul just wants us to know God is able. So be careful with your categories. And I think what Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus is don't give up on God. Don't strip him of his sovereignty. Don't think that he's lost his stuff. Pray with faith, believing that he can. He's that powerful and he's that good, so don't give up. And then there's this last statement that I think probably is the pinnacle of the prayer. He says, to him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I think Paul's saying here, when you're really strengthened and filled with his presence, and when you've been touched by the love of God, and when you're filled up with God and you're convinced of his miraculous power, you will become eager for God's glory to be displayed in his church and throughout all generations. You actually walk around more concerned about God's glory than you do about your own success and failure. One of the obsessions in your life, positively speaking, will be an eagerness for God's glory to be displayed in the church. And not just your church, but the whole church. And not just our generation, but throughout all generations. My daughters have seen the glory of God in a local church. And they've been through eras where the power of God has been unmistakable. And for 60 years, there's been eras here where, the, where that same power has been unmistakable. And if I have grandchildren, I want them to see that in their life too. I, I think you probably want that too. Now, as I was preparing for today, I thought to myself, I'm just not going to preach this. I'm going to actually pray this for all the people at Bel Air. So you've been praying, these things I've been praying into your life all week. On top of that, Drew asked the church staff specifically to pray these things into your life this last week too, and they've been praying for you. But before we leave, I just want to ask you to do a very unselfish thing. I'd like you to put someone else's name in this prayer as an act of love toward the person who comes to mind. I want you to pray an intelligent prayer for a family member or for a friend. Who do you know right now who's beaten down and the circumstances of their life have pretty much overwhelmed them? Would you put their name in that first category? Would you ask God, would you strengthen this person? Strengthen them by your Holy Spirit and their inner being. being. And next, who's lonely? Who do you know who feels isolated? And if they were aware today of God's indwelling presence and the accompanying nearness, the proximity of Christ by his Spirit, it might change their day. Who do you know? Put their name in that prayer right now. 
What hard-hearted person do you know who's probably never been emotionally moved by the direct, affectionate touch of God? About whom would you say, oh man, that that person actually felt a moment of being overwhelmingly, irrationally loved by God, it would just melt them. Who's that person that you could pray for right now? Who could you pray for that this woman or that man would be filled to capacity with God himself? Who needs a miracle? Like a Hail Mary pass from the 20 going all the way to the other side of the field. Who needs to see God do something exceeding abundantly above all that they could ask or imagine? Who needs to see God do something in, like that in their life? Pray it into them and pray that they would have the faith to believe that God could do it. And then finally, would you pray that every Christ follower you know would be more concerned about and eager for God's glory to be displayed in the church, all churches? And when you're driving home today and you pass another church, instead of comparing this one to that, would you just say, God, I want God's glory to be manifest through the ministry of that church. And when you start thinking about churches around the world in various countries, would you just say, oh God, would your church be strong in that country? Would your glory be manifest in every church throughout the generations? And those of you who have young kids or grandkids, would you just pray, may my children or my grandchildren see the powerful work of God through his church and receive glory through it. And God, we're so grateful. We're grateful for who you are. May there be glory in us even as we know there is in your son Jesus. And it's in his name we pray because we believe these are the things that he would pray about. Amen.